Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. Uh, I'm Martin Zubkop. Today we're going to speak about Scottish politics, what's going on in Scotland. And we also touch some scandals, some controversial decisions in Scotland. And we want to go through the politics so we can better understand Scotland. My guest today is Andrew Lido. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Martin. Nice to see you. Andrew is a writer, is political analyst, but also a very good researcher. He writes for The Courier, which is a Scottish newspaper, and also Andrew published two books. The first book was published in 2018. It's called Rue Davidson and the Resurgence of the Scottish Tories. And the second book was published in 2022, and it's called Cheers, Mr. Churchill, Winston in Scotland. Both books receive fantastic reviews, and I'm very happy to have Andrew on the show. And I think we can start with a little bit of background of the Scottish politics, so my students and the international audience can better understand Scotland and Scottish politics. So how would you describe the landscape, the political landscape of Scotland, when we're speaking about year 2014, when you had a Scottish referendum for independence. So what has changed since that time and what can we see in Scottish politics? Well, Martin, thanks very much for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, you're absolutely right, I think, to focus in on, on uh, 2014. It's clearly the kind of uh, the, the, the hinge moment, the pivot point, I think, in in uh, certainly modern um, Scottish politics. I think if, you, if we think about the pre uh, kind of 2014 age, um, that was very much an age of uh, what I would think of as sort of conventional party politics. You know, you had the Labour Party as the kind of social democratic centre-left party. You had the Conservative Party as the sort of, um, you know, the Christian Democrat or, or centre-right party. Um, you had the, the Liberals as the kind of uh, centrist party. You know, this is slightly simplistic, but this is the, the reality that existed in, in sort of broad terms. And you did have the Scottish National Party as well. They were, they were a much smaller party. Um, a, a party that supported, um, uh, obviously, the ultimate goal of Scottish independence. Um, uh, but they, in the kind of pre-2014 uh, era, they were really, they were a presence, but not a significant presence. Um, what happened, as, as you alluded to in, in, in your question in 2014, was, of course, we had the referendum uh, on, on Scottish independence. The Scottish nationalists had gained power in, in the Scottish Parliament in, in 2011. Um for some reasons that maybe we'll, we'll come to discuss, but um, that referendum in 2014 completely changed the dynamic of, of, of Scottish politics and completely changed the, the landscape because you moved from having this very conventional political situation of left versus right uh, to having one where people were motivated much more by their identity and specifically their identity on the question of independence. Um, and you had voters, their primary concern became not you know, left versus right politics, but independence versus versus unionism, which is what we we call the, the kind of pro uh, pro remain in the UK uh, people in in Scotland. Um, so it completely shifted the, the the dynamic, and this had a, this had a monumental impact uh, on on the Scottish political landscape over the last ten years, definitely. Mm. And when you mentioned the referendum in in that times. Who initiated the referendum from the Scotland or, or Scottish politics or political parties? 
Yeah, so it was it was um, uh, a complex process. It had always been the policy of the Scottish National Party um, to support to support an independent the ultimate goal of an of an independent Scotland. There were debates within the party throughout the seventies and eighties of what was the best path to get there. But on the whole, um, the Scottish National Party always supported that as an end goal. Um, what happened is, is you had the, the creation of the Scottish Parliament in nineteen ninety nine. I think we'll, we'll go on to discuss a bit of this, but. Um, uh, that had a, its own elections, and in 2011, uh, the Scottish National Party won a majority um, in that uh, in the Scottish Parliament, uh, which was a very significant moment. They, they it was a, the electoral system is such in, in the Scottish Parliament that you're not meant to be able to get a majority. You have to do extremely well to, to, for one party to win a majority outright. Um, the system is designed to encourage sort of coalitions and, and a multi-party system. Um, uh, but under Alex Salmond, who was who was the then leader, the, the SNP did win uh, the vote in 2011. And with a majority, they passed a, an act which called for a referendum. Um, but crucially, the Scottish Parliament didn't then and, and still doesn't now have the power on its own to call a referendum. That's what's a reserved issue to the UK government. And so they required the permission of the UK government. And David Cameron, who was the Conservative UK Prime Minister at the time, decided that because the SNP had won this majority, um, that that he would grant the permission uh, uh, in order for there to be an independence referendum. And I think with the intention that um, it would be a referendum that would be easily won for the pro-UK side, um, it turned out, I think, to be much closer than, than he had expected. Um, uh, and also that that would then kind of push put this question to bed uh, for a generation or more and, and potentially undermine the power of the, and the purpose of the Scottish the Scottish National Party. So that's how it kind of, that was how it came about. Right. So the Scottish uh, National Party played the major role in, in that process because it has the majority in, in terms of the parliament. So can you can you tell us a bit more about the Scottish National Party? Because in the in the world, many people when they say or when they see or, or read about National Party, it's automatically nationalism and that sort of movement. So what's the Scottish National Party like in Scotland? What sort of party is it? Well, it has a fascinating history, um, and certainly in um, uh, in sort of contemporary terms now, um, I think certainly um, it would be defined as, or certainly its members, the majority of its members would perceive themselves as being very kind of centre-left, social democratic, not, as as you say in your question, kind of a traditional, uh, perhaps what might be, people might assume is a traditional nationalist movement. Um, for instance, uh, they're very pro-immigration, uh, they um, would like to think of Scotland as being an internationalist country. They're, they're very pro-international um, institutions like the EU and the United Nations, that kind of thing. Um, so it's not a conventional nationalist movement in that sense. It does, in its history, it has had elements of that. So, I mean, it was established as a single party in the 1930s, um, fusion of a kind of left a left wing uh, uh, party, um, and then um, a fusion of a, of a sort of right wing, the National Party of Scotland, and they kind they sort of merged together. They realised that they were better off um, uh, uh, if they wanted to achieve independence. They needed to work together rather than. And since then, that's kind of always been um, uh, the SNP's uh, sort of modus operandi. They've always had a big, a big, a broad tent, um, a broad church. Um, of support that's pulled in a lot of members from the left and also some from the right. 
um, uh, who all are motivated by their desire to achieve Scottish independence. Uh, and that kind of almost goes beyond um, uh, kind of conventional ideologies. Um, but certainly today, um, yes, they would be a sort of um, uh, a kind of centre-left sort of, um, I suppose, liberal um, uh, almost uh, kind of party um, in their outlook. And um, one of the arguments that, that they would now make for independence is that actually it would enable Scotland to be a more outward looking, a more internationalist, a more um, a cooperative power uh, in Europe, for instance, than the UK. And this is particularly post-Brexit, obviously, you know, that, that argument has come to the fore. So it, it, it is different to, to other nationalist movements, which might be more, um, uh, you know, uh, have, a, have a different view of, of sort of international institutions and that kind of thing. How would you describe the Scottish National Party popularity and understanding among older generation and younger generation? Because that's quite an issue that, you know, people are interested in. Definitely. Well, the SNP has made huge um, uh, inroads among the younger population. I think that um, particularly if you look at support for independence, um, it's much, much higher uh, among younger people than it is uh, among older people. And indeed, I think it's only when you start to get into the 50 plus, uh, 55 plus age bracket that you get majority support for um, the UK uh, so it's so it's it's an idea. Uh, independence as a concept has gained huge traction uh, among among younger people. Definitely, um, of course, many people were in twenty fourteen. You know, this in twenty fourteen, it was the first contest uh, kind of electoral experience that they had. Um, in many ways, I thought it was quite a divisive campaign, but I know that a lot of people um, also found it very um, exciting and 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 energetic and. Um, uh, it, it, it gave them a taste taste for politics that has followed through into their support for the SNP. And the SNP has made sp specific overtures towards younger voters as well. So, uh, for instance, they lowered, uh, they succeeded in lowering the voting age for the referendum to 16, um, uh, which had a big impact. Um, and there are a lot of people now who are coming through to vote for the first time um, who have largely only known SNP dominance of Scottish politics. So um, there is very much an old, older versus younger generation divide when it comes to support for independence in particular, um, but also support for the SNP. So which choices do Scottish people have? You, we mentioned Scottish National Party as, as the major one or the party which is the most popular. What else is at the moment in Scotland on the political scene? So there, there are there are two other main parties uh, other than the Scottish National Party. Um, the first I mentioned is, is the Scottish Labour Party, um, which was until um, the kind of late two thousands was very much the dominant party um, of Scottish politics. It had been for about thirty years um, or more. Uh, it persistently uh, won, uh, you know, the vast majority of seats in Scotland. When the Scottish Parliament was formed in 1999, it formed the first administration there um, and would go on to do so for the next um, three elections. Uh, so it was, was very, very popular. Um, its support absolutely collapsed after the referendum in 2014. Uh, the Scottish Labour Party, I should say, is, is a pro-UK party, so it generally supports um, remaining in, in the union with the rest of the UK and opposes independence. Uh, although some of its members, particularly more left-wing members, 
perhaps might be might be more um, pro independence as well. So it's slightly it can be slightly divided on that question, which doesn't help with voters understanding where it stands. Um, but after 2014, its its support completely collapsed, and even now, it's uh, you know they, they had I think um, 40 MPs going into the 2015 general election, and after that general election, they had one. So that that gives you a scale, a sense of the scale of the collapse in support, um, and uh, they're starting to make a bit of a recovery in Scotland now, which which we're probably going to talk about. But still, um, it's very much not <laughs> the dominant party it once was. The SNP has completely eclipsed it and and taken away uh, a lot of its support, largely for those issues I mentioned at the start. The other um, uh, main party is the Scottish Conservative Party. Um, uh, the Scottish Conservative Party has a really interesting history, actually, because it was, and no one nowadays thinks of Scotland as being a conservative place. But actually, if you were to go back to the 1940s, the 1950s, and the 1960s, Scotland actually had a huge conservative um, uh, support. In the 1955 general election, um, the Conservative Party won more than 50% of the vote in Scotland. Um, and the only other party to do that throughout the entire electoral history of Scotland was the SNP in 2015. So that gives you a scale of um, a sense of the scale of, of the support that the party did have. But slowly over over the decades that followed the, the kind of 1960s, the Conservative Party lost um, a significant amount of its support, um, particularly uh, under Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. And by the kind of 1990s, 2000s, it was very much the 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 third party really in Scotland. Um, they only had a handful of seats at Westminster, and they were consistently the third party um, in the Scottish Parliament as well. Um, that did change a bit again after 2014. Um, going back to what we said at the start, because because people started to identify as being pro UK uh, rather than left or right or anything like that, because the debate became pro-UK versus pro-independence, the Scottish Conservatives were very much perceived as the UK party. And so they were able to take advantage of that. Um, in the 2016 Holyrood election, they overtook Labour to go into second place. Um, and they also did extremely well in, in the 2017 general election in Scotland as well. So they've enjoyed a bit of a resurgence, actually, as a result of this this change in the political landscape. Um, but uh, perhaps their fortunes are starting to decline a bit now as well. Hmm. Do you also have any political parties which are, let's say, trendy, like green parties or people hmm. inclining to the climate change policies? Or do you have any emergence of liberal parties? I was just thinking, actually, as as I finished that answer, that I didn't mention the Scottish, Scottish Green Party, which was a big oversight, because um, they are a uh, they're not a big they're not a huge party in Scotland by any means, um, but they are a very significant party. Um, and um, as you say, I mean, they the, their origins are very much in the devolution era, so post nineteen ninety nine, um, and and they tend to get elected only on the um, proportional representation list system. So they don't do very well at general elections. Whereas you'll know we have. Uh, first past the post, um, it's harder for them to do well there. Um, but I think um, uh, they started out very much the kind of classic, as you'd expect, sort of environmentalist uh, party. Um, but they made the decision in um, the late 2000s uh, to uh, also support Scottish independence. Uh, so they are now, they are the other main kind of pro-independence um, party, along with being an environmentalist party. And today they actually sit alongside uh uh, the SNP in a kind of, um, it's not quite a coalition, but in a sort of, they have a cooperation agreement 
Um, so that they are an important party in 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 Scottish politics for sure. There are also the Scottish Liberal Democrats, um, which is uh, uh, the the Liberal Party. They were they had a number of seats, about I think uh, certainly more than ten um, seats in Scotland until 2015. Again, as a result of the um, uh, the 2014 referendum, they're a pro-UK party and they got completely eclipsed um, by the SNP. They were very strong in the Highlands, uh, but now they, again, they only have, um, or after 2015, they only had one uh, one seat at the general election. It's Orkney and Shetland, right in the, the Northern Isles um, of Scotland. Um, but um, they remain, there's a portion of the country for sure that will still, still uh, support the Liberal Democrats. You mentioned several times Scottish Parliament. Mm. What does it mean for Scotland and for international relations? Because I think some people might be confused. There is a parliament as Westminster, as a UK, as a centre, making decision-making policies. And then there is Scottish Parliament. So why Scotland has that parliament? And what's the mission of it? Or what's the political role of the Scottish Parliament? Mm. Well, the, the, the origins of, of devolution are, are, go back an awful long way, even though it's a relatively, uh, it was, you know, an institution of the last 20 years or so. Um, you know, as far back as 1911, uh, Winston Churchill was making an argument for a Scottish Parliament in, in Cabinet. So th these things have their origins um, in, 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 in deep in history. Um, the kind of the purpose, I suppose, of the Scottish Parliament is there's always been a sense that... Um, Scotland, as with other countries that make up the Union, you know, Wales, Ireland, now Northern Ireland, um, they do have, as well as being part of the UK, they often have a distinct national identity or distinct um, attitudes towards local issues. And that there's a sense that um, uh, decisions are often best taken, taken by the people that affect them. And so that therefore it's a good idea where possible to kind of devolve power um, over certain issues from Westminster to uh, regional assemblies or parliaments or whatever um, kind of language you want to wrap them in, um, in order that they should um, that they can make those decisions on behalf of their people. And this is overtly as well, I think, a method of of kind of keeping the the union um, together. Obviously, in the nineteen twenties, Ireland separated from from the United Kingdom. Um, there had before that been what was known as the Home Rule movement, um, which was to keep Ireland in the UK, but give Ireland a parliament that would have control over its kind of domestic affairs. And since then, I think there's a sense among some people that, that really value the union, that the way to keep countries like Scotland and Wales, um, uh, and to, to the extent it's necessary, Northern Ireland within the UK and, and maintains popular support, popular support for the union, uh, is, is to um, give them as much control as possible over their own domestic affairs. So the Scottish Parliament came into being um, in, in 1999 as a result of a referendum that took place in, in 1997. Um, its powers have been expanded a bit over the, the last 20 years or so, um, but it effectively has control over issues like healthcare, uh, policing and justice, uh, transport, education, um, some aspects of economic policy, but not all. Um, so it has quite a broad range of, of powers. And indeed, it can, for instance, we'll, we'll talk about this probably when we talk about the economy, but it can set income tax rates. So Scotland now has different income tax rates to the rest of the UK. Um, uh, so it has quite considerable control of, over domestic politics in in, in Scotland. Um, but 
What it doesn't have control over is is, is things like foreign policy, uh, defense issues, uh, international trade, uh, immigration, uh, these kind of things, which are the UK Parliament manages um, as a whole um, uh, for the whole of the UK. So there's no divergence on policy in, in terms of those things. Um, but it has it has created an interesting dynamic for sure. Is there any movement or is there any campaign to make the Scottish Parliament even more effective and efficient and to, to implement some of the competences coming from the foreign policy or international relations? Because for some people it might be quite useful, you know, I want to invest in Scotland, I want to influence domestic politics and domestic economy, but in some way I have to start with London, not with Edinburgh. So I'm just like like the contemporary movement or contemporary politicians. Maybe you have some uh, political experts. Uh, maybe you have some political analysts, you know, commenting the issues. So are people happy what they have at the moment or they would like to expand the competencies of the Scottish Parliament even more? Well, it's a, it's a very good question, Martin. I think um, this is a very controversial subject in Scottish politics, so, as you might imagine. Um, so. I'll take it in two parts. In terms of what the Scottish government or what the SNP um, do, I mean, they have, they completely recognise, I think, that point. And so they have set up a number, I think it's about half a dozen now, uh, kind of international offices. Uh, obviously, they're not embassies, but they, uh, mm. they, um, but, but they sort of conduct um, a, a shadow diplomacy makes it sound rather sinister, but they're there to represent the Scottish government uh, to engage with uh, foreign governments, to, to to engage with foreign businesses, to try and encourage investment in Scotland, um, and also to represent, I think, Scottish uh, products and, and Scottish brands on the international stage. Obviously, you know, things like whiskey and uh, that you know there are some iconic Scottish brands that that, that the Scottish government is keen to promote abroad. Um, so I think they definitely recognise that point, and I think that um, particularly post Brexit. Um, the Scottish government is keen to have more control um, over its international uh, affairs. Uh, the UK government, though, is very reluctant um, to do this, and indeed, it's been a it's been a controversy recently um, around um, uh, the extent to which foreign foreign office officials are being expected to to, to, to facilitate um, kind of diplomacy by the Scottish government. So, for instance. Um, these these international trade offices will often use uh, UK embassies and things abroad for meetings uh, where the Scottish government official might be advocating for independence, which, of course, is not a UK government policy um, and trying to encourage support among the international community for independence, uh, which runs contrary to the wishes of the UK government. So these things become very, very controversial. And, you know, if I were a conservative politician speaking to you today, I would say, well, of course, the UK government advocates for the UK economy and for investment in the United Kingdom and for UK uh, for UK industry, of which Scotland is a key part. So you you don't need, as the Scottish government, you don't need control over these over these areas. Um, but of course, the SNP would would see things differently. So the communication between the Scottish Parliament and the Westminster at the moment. How would you assess assess this? You know, like do do you have any like constructive dialogue, or it's all about clashes and disapprovements and who is stronger politically and who is stronger locally? So how is it at the moment? 
It's interesting. I, th I think if you go back to, 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 to 1999, you know, the early period of the Scottish Parliament, it was much more cooperative because, of course, you had a Labour government in Westminster under Tony Blair and then um, Gordon Brown, but particularly Tony Blair in this in this period, and and then um, uh, a Labour government in 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 the Scottish Parliament in Holyrood, as we call it, um, uh, which uh, you know I think naturally makes cooperation um, and dialogue. Um, much more straightforward. I also think in that period, of course, independence wasn't really uh, or wasn't at all the kind of driving force of political discussion. And I think it has changed the dynamic and it's slightly set the Scottish Parliament up um, as, a, as a sort of alternative um, or, or, or contrary uh, uh, institution to, to, to the Westminster Parliament. And so over time, they have come to clash um, a lot more and, and the relationship is now a lot more confrontational there's obviously a lot of other reasons for that as well around issues i mean brexit being the primary one um but also personalities i think that for instance the former first minister nicola sturgeon and boris johnson very very different people uh probably not going to see eye to eye in any circumstance um so the relationship has come become a lot more uh, a lot more controversial um, uh, and of course the, the, the clashes over uh, having another independence referendum itself something we haven't mentioned yet but it's been a very uh, hot topic over in Scottish politics over the last kind of five years or so whether there should be another referendum um, the UK government has repeatedly uh, and the House of Parliament have repeatedly refused um, uh, to allow the SNP to have another referendum to grant it the power as they did previously for there to be another referendum. Um, so uh, that obviously has caused a serious uh, uh, contentious as well. I think it will be very interesting to see what will happen. We expect a, a general election in the UK next year. The Labour government wins. Um, and the Labour government is more, our Labour Party, sorry, is more, is considered to be more respectful of, of devolution of the Scottish Parliament. The Labour government, of course, set up the Scottish Parliament in 1999. Um, if that might change the dynamics slightly, and we might move back towards having, even though the SNP is still in power in, in the Scottish Parliament, maybe they'll have a more cooperative relationship because there won't be such an ideological clash as you get between the SNP and the Conservatives. But certainly at the moment, I think it is, it's it's not uh, sort of working fluidly, right? It's it's not ideal, as we say in political yes, exactly. correct English. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good. You mentioned the independence, Scottish independence, as a main political movement. Can we say a few sentences about the impact of the Brexit on this movement? Was there any influence, or it was taken as oh, there is Brexit, there's gonna be Scottish independence very soon. Well, it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was this was a huge, um, uh, huge moment in well, in, in British politics, obviously, but in Scottish politics as well. Um, and interestingly, and this goes back to, to talking about the character of the SNP, the SNP's policy has always been what they call independence in Europe. So they have always advocated, and, and even in 2014, uh, they advocated that um, uh, an independent Scotland would try and uh, apply to rejoin. The EU, or would, you know, the aim would be to, for it to be an EU member state, and of course, some people make the argument: well, why are you taking power from Westminster to then hand it to Brussels? But that's that's a, a different argument. But I think it, it is certainly true that in recent years, the uh, the SNP has been very uh, very pro European Union membership, 
um, as have a lot of people in Scotland. Um, it, it was a key, one of the key deciding factors in the 2014 referendum was um, Jose Manuel Barroso, who was then the, the president of the European Commission, indicating that Scotland, an independent Scotland, probably wouldn't uh, get back into the EU. Uh, was a key moment in the 2014 referendum campaign because I think people in Scotland are very pro-EU. And that was borne out in the Brexit referendum itself, where the vast majority of people in Scotland voted to remain. It had the strongest remain vote um, of any part of the UK. Um, only of the nations, I think only Northern Ireland and Scotland voted to remain. Uh, 62%, I think, of people in Scotland voted to remain. So very, very high compared to the UK average but of course the UK as a whole voted to leave um, and this created a, a, a serious issue uh, where the SNP argued that Scotland was being dragged out of the EU um, against its will to use their language um, and Nicola Sturgeon who, who was first minister at the time decided that this was a material change in the circumstances from from the 2014 referendum and that therefore people in Scotland had had the right to say if they wanted to be in a Scotland um, uh, that would be part of a UK that's outside the EU. Um, what is interesting is it hasn't actually led to a significant jump in Brexit, hasn't actually led to a significant jump in support um, for Scottish independence, um, which you might have expected. Um, while there have been some polls that have suggested there was a majority, there's now a majority for independence. Most of them indicate that actually it's still split in the same way as it was uh, in 2014, which is about 45% of the country support independence and about 55% of the country oppose. I mean, you see slightly different, but roughly it's, it's the same within the margin of error. Um, so uh, I think Brexit clearly has had an impact in terms of the... Uh, I suppose the kind of the casus belli or the or the the, the legitimacy, the, the perceived legitimacy of a second independence referendum, but it hasn't actually moved the dial in terms of support for independence in the way in the way that you might expect. I tell you a few ideas from abroad that people are thinking about when you speak about Scottish independence, and most of them they understand the pro arguments why you want to be independent. But there, are, there is a group of people arguing with few few points. The first one is Scotland as a reservoir of drinking water for the UK. The second one is the Scotland as a significant military base of for the UK because we have submarines and all those things around Scotland. And the last one is the geopolitical meaning of the Scottish territory, which has a strategic point in terms of the aircrafts, maritime security and also the energy security as Scotland is expanding renewable energies and also there is the oil basically next to Scotland. So how would you how would you respond to those arguments of the let's say skeptics of the Scottish independence? In terms of the the defense issues they're absolutely right. I mean Scotland is a hugely strategically important um, uh, area for defense and particularly particularly in a world where we're in kind of renewed uh, conflict or, or confrontation with with Russia, um, you know, it, it, it's a key a strategic point in terms of the, the North Atlantic, um, uh, and it is as you, as you say in your question, it's a key 
strategic interest in terms of defence as well. Uh, not just actually for, for Britain, although it is hugely important for Britain, but but for the United States as well. I mean, Faslane, which is the um, uh, the naval base on the west coast of Scotland, um, is not just the the base for the UK's nuclear deterrent. Um, but also, I think, is used by a lot of US uh, submarines in the Atlantic as well, that kind of thing. For, and they've invested, the United States has invested a lot in in the Faslane base itself. So it's, so it's hugely, um, uh, hugely significant. And as you say, as well, in the North Sea, uh, oil and gas, um, energy security, this is a very uh, hot topic at the moment, of course, not just internationally, but in, in domestic politics as well, is, is what to do about the... Uh, the North Sea. So I, I do think from from a security point of view, um, uh, you know, that there would be clearly concerns, I think, about um, what independence might mean for not just for the security of the United Kingdom, but I think for the for the security of the NATO alliance. And I think this is particularly uh, pointed because, of course, the Scottish National Party policy is that nuclear weapons must not be based in Scotland. They are very anti-nuclear weapons. And so um, that would, no one knows quite what permutation that might take were Scottish independence actually to happen. And if they would force the UK to move its deterrent out of out of Faslane, uh, or if they would lease them the base, or there are various options that are, that are discussed. But um, the fundamental and it is a kind of totemic issue for, for a lot of Scottish nationalists, is that nuclear weapons shouldn't be based in, in Scotland. So you could theoretically end up in a situation where the UK, um, uh, and indeed to an extent other NATO allies, become quite strategically exposed um, should Scotland um, be independent. Right. So well, let's assume that there is a referendum today and you say like 76% say, yes, we want to be independent. Then what? What do you guys need? Like, do you need a signature from Westminster, or or that's that's it? Then you can work on the borders and you know the flag and and anthem and everything. Or how does it work after the referendum? Mm. Well, so so Alex Salmond, who was the first minister who who uh, the and the, the Scottish National Party leader who who took part in the twenty fourteen referendum, um, he argued that uh, an independent Scotland could be set up within eighteen months. Um, so his plan was that um, kind of in twenty uh 16 i think by 2016 uh scotland would be able to to break away from the united kingdom i think the experience of of brexit um and the massive complications and time-consuming negotiations and um uh difficulties and political log jams that, that we faced with that i think make such a timeline 18 months to set up an entirely new country uh not probably seem a little unfeasible um uh these days so i, th I think that would in terms of the, the the practicalities that would definitely have to be revisited i think the really important thing though from from the perspective of scottish nationalists and if they want to make independence a success is that it has to be recognized by the uk government and in fairness to um uh, Nicola Sturgeon, or, or and the future, um, the, sorry, the current first minister Hamza Youssef, uh, who's also now the leader of the SNP, um, they recognise this because if it doesn't have, if independence doesn't have the support and the recognition of the UK government, then it's not going to have any international uh, legitimacy either. And so that's why securing a legal referendum uh, for which only the UK government can grant permission has become such an important. Um, uh, factor for the Scottish National Party and why they're not willing to uh, hold a kind of Catalan style 
uh, referendum because they know that if they want to to achieve this legitimacy, um, it has to be with the consent um, and 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 I suppose to an extent at least support um, uh, of the UK government, which can only come through a through a de proper democratic mandate. Would it be theoretically possible to organise the UK referendum about Scottish independence, where the whole UK would basically vote, and the question would be like, do you agree that Scotland should be independent, yes or no, you know, and then you have the UK concern, basically, or this is not possible at all? Just just theoretically. It's theoretically, yeah, I think it's a really interesting, interesting question. I know... Uh, I grew up in London, uh, but my 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 family is Scottish, and I remember speaking to my my grandmother during 2014. She who lived in London at this time, um, but she you know she's Scottish through and through, and spent her life in in Scotland um, until until she grew old. And um, uh, she was very angry that she didn't have a vote in the 2014 referendum because she felt that it was very much a question of her identity, whereas. I, who had only moved to Scotland, uh, you know, five years before, did get a vote, and so she was very agitated about this, and 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 kind of thought that that same thing of why 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 shouldn't it be a UK wide vote? I think the issue with it being uh, a UK wide vote is I'm not sure. I mean, at the moment, the UK government, or or, or indeed, in effect, English taxpayers um, subsidise uh, uh, a lot of public services and, and, and public spending in Scotland um, because, you know, we have a transfer of wealth as a result of the union. Um, and therefore, there's I suppose there's a good chance the voters in England might say, well, actually, I'd rather keep the £2,000 per head extra that we send to Scotland um, and have it spent down here and you can good luck on your own. Um, so I don't know if it would it might affect the outcome in a different way, perhaps, that people, that people might expect. But I think it's un it's unlikely to, to it's a good theoretical question, but I think it's probably unlikely to happen given um, given those issues. But also, I think now, given the precedent that we had in 2014, which was it was a Scotland only vote, um, I think people were reluctant even to change the question and that kind of thing. So I think it would be a sort of mirror of of that. I have one pragmatic question for my students who, I mean international students, who are wondering, do Scottish people have Scottish citizenship or Scottish passport? Or they are like British and they have British passports. How, how is it? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, 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 so they have, um, you have a UK, United Kingdom passport um, uh, and all the same uh, documentation as uh, you would if you were born in England or, or elsewhere in the UK. Um, uh, the only thing that would be different, I think, is that you know your place of birth could be Edinburgh or Glasgow, I would say, on the passport. But uh, but no, you would have um, have everything everything the same uh, for better or worse. <laughs> right. So so in terms, there is some designers watching you can design the next scottish passport that would be quite useful for scotland to have let's move to leaders and leadership in politics i mean few few days ago i was reading about nicola sturgeon and she was arrested and interrogated for some hours then she was released and then there were various statements about financing the the politics and all that mess so can we speak a little about about the influence or impact of Nicola Sturgeon on the Scottish politics? And why is she in that sort of 
you know, very strange situation because usually after we have the main politician resign, you know, there are there are a few articles and then basically a few interviews and she or he is going to join some international think tank and having nice speeches around the world. And suddenly we see Nicola Sturgeon is, you know, wandering around police station. So what's going on? And, and you know, how, why, is, why, why is that, you know? Yes, it's it's a, it is a spectacular uh, change of fortunes. I think um, to to come up, um, to first of all tell you a bit about uh, and then and then deal with it. Uh, I mean, uh, Sturgeon was was elected in 1999 to the Scottish Parliament. She's been an absolute fixture of of Scottish politics of the devolution era. Uh, she was Alex Salmond's deputy uh, for a long time, and then took over from him when he stepped down after the defeat in in the referendum campaign of 2014, um, and for a period, I think particularly particularly around 2015, uh, around the EU referendum, um, perhaps a bit a bit longer, she was uh, one of the most, if not the most, formidable politicians in Britain. Extremely highly regarded, uh, she had incredible popularity ratings, not just in Scotland actually, but 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 she was very popular in, in the whole of the UK, which is you know slightly counterintuitive given she's a Scottish nationalist. But she was a wonderful. Um, communicator and I think um, particularly on um, uh, Brexit she became a kind of um, uh, you know a real figurehead for, for pro-Remain supporters because she was a very articulate and sort of no-nonsense advocate for, for Remain and for um, strong relations with the EU after the Brexit vote so um, uh, so, so she, she, she has a lot of strengths um, there and um, her time in office was perhaps she didn't. I mean, she won an awful lot of elections: twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen, uh, twenty nineteen, twenty twenty one. Uh, you know, that's a good and significant majorities uh, among seats uh, or, or, or significant numbers of seats at every election. Um, so she was electorally very successful. I think her policy record in, in office is a bit more sketchy, um, uh, more mixed, um, and. I think that you saw when she resigned um, a, a few months ago now, uh, she sort of struggled to list any real or substantive achievements, um, which I think for someone who was in office for almost a decade um, is quite a telling, um, quite a telling thing. Um, in terms of the, 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 uh, what's happened to her since leaving office. And I think it's, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speculate, of course, but it's it's interesting that she chose to leave office and then about three or four weeks later was arrested. Um, but um, uh, there is an investigation. That the police are investigating the Scottish National Party's um, finances. There is um, £600,000 or so was raised uh, by pro-independence activists for the Scottish National Party with the specific remit that that money would be used to fund a new referendum campaign. Um, since then, uh, the latest SNP accounts show that it doesn't, that money's sort of um, been spent or disappeared or, or, or whatever. It's no longer on the accounting books. Um, and this is even further complicated by the fact that Nicola Sturgeon's husband, Peter Murrell, uh, was the chief executive uh you know the kind of chairman the, the person in charge of the scottish national party um so there was so there's a very close link uh between the between the two um and as a result of this investigation he was first arrested 
um, and and uh, their home, Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Morrell's home was searched. Then Colin Beattie, who's a member of the Scottish Parliament, but also the SNP treasurer, uh, he was arrested and questioned. Uh, and then finally, uh, was it last two, two, you know, earlier this month um, in June, uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon was arrested uh, and questioned. And I think the next stage will be if the police do think there's been wrongdoing. Um, and it should be noted very much that Nicola Sturgeon in particular has protested her innocence of any wrongdoing. But um, if they do find there to be wrongdoing, then, then if they'll be charged. Um, uh, so it's quite a spectacular uh, uh, fall of, you know, to go from from Butte House, which is the kind of Downing Street of, of Scotland, to uh, a, a police uh, interview room um, in, a, in a space of about a month is, is quite a fall from, from grace, almost regardless of the outcome, I think. Hmm. Can you can, or can we assess some sort of political legacy of Nicola Sturgeon? Because at the moment, you know, all the students, all the audience is, is just reading about the charges and criminal activities and money and how this all influence, influence her career. But usually, you know, one scandal can erase the whole track, all the good things and maybe less good things you, you, you made, you know, during the political career. But if, if there is no, let's say, this, this criminal you know, issue at the moment, what would be the Nicola Sturgeon's political legacy? Well, I think, as I said, I think she was very, very good. She was electorally very successful. She was a wonderful uh, politician at winning elections. Um, but does that really form a legacy? I'm not sure it does, because it's what you do with election wins that matter. And I think, as I say, that her policy record is is quite um, quite weak. And I think that there is now a sense that she actually failed, really, to seize the opportunities, perhaps, that, that, that particularly Brexit presented, uh, to really turn the dial in favour of Scottish independence. I mean, the thing... The focus of the SNP under Nicola Sturgeon's leadership was always about the technical question of the mechanism of how did the SNP secure another legal referendum. Um, and therefore, she focused on, well, the SNP need to win majorities, we need to win elections. And if we do that, then the, the UK government will have no alternative to, to but to give us the power to hold another referendum. What she didn't focus on was was converting people to being pro-independence. And so, as I said earlier, the, 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 the numbers in terms of those that support the UK and those that support independence have remained pretty static um, between, uh, between 2014 and now. Um, and there maybe has been some churn underneath, but the headline figures are the same. And that, I think, fundamentally is the issue. And that is, is, is why I think Nicola Sturgeon will be viewed um, overall as a failure because actually rather the, the issue wasn't the mechanism of, of how, how you gain another referendum. The issue was that not enough people in Scotland wanted another referendum and not enough people in Scotland wanted independence and she failed to persuade people of that of that case and therefore I think history will probably view her leadership despite her enormous qualities as a leader and despite her huge electoral successes um, as a failure. Some international students also told me that uh, from their perspective of being non-Scottish living in Scotland, that Nicola Sturgeon focused too much on independence 
on the gender issues policies and on sort of like you know balancing the Westminster and Edinburgh in, in some sophisticated way but then those people said to me a few things like for instance there is a strike of bin people in Dundee or Edinburgh so they're not collecting the trash and they said like why are we not sorting the practical issues in Scotland for instance I spoke with some people who who are fishermen and they also told me you know like it's not how it used to be in Scotland, you know, something must change because we are losing that sort of Scottish identity, things we are doing in Scotland in our way. How would you, how would you assess, you know, the criticism coming from those people? I think, I think there's a lot of fairness in, in that criticism. I think that um, the, motivator, the primary motivator of the Scottish National Party is independence. And therefore that means that when it's dealing with other policies, with practical policies, with um, the day-to-day -day, uh, elements of governing, uh, Nicola Sturgeon in particular was very reluctant to rock the boat in any kind of way and uh, do anything, uh, make any kind of bold or significant changes to the way things were run because it might risk alienating people from supporting the SNP or supporting independence. And so it was very much... Uh, her policy was very much kind of steady as she goes, more of the same, um, without looking to instigate any kind of reform um, or, or do things um, differently, really. And when you look at the, the practical consequences of that, um, you know, the NHS in Scotland, I think, is is in a, a pretty poor state. I mean, the National Health Service, it, I think that that could be the case across the whole of the UK, but Scotland, you know, the NHS is run in Scotland by the Scottish government um, and it could be therefore better. Um, I think that um, education, you know, Nicola Sturgeon promised to close the attainment gap between rich uh, children and, and poorer children. Uh, it got wider under her government. Um, there are really significant issues in their legacy. And I, I think that's um, that's right, but it's there is also a point uh, and we'll maybe come and discuss this a bit later in more detail, but the, throughout the time of the Scottish Parliament, you know, this isn't just a, an issue with, with Nicola Sturgeon, throughout the history of the Scottish Parliament since 1999, it has tended to focus more on social issues and social than it has on uh, economic policy or kind of um, what you might call hard politics. It prefers, um, it's preferred to, to, to wrestle with sort of softer issues. Um, and I think there is increasingly a reckoning in, in among the kind of Scottish political establishment and the media and uh, that Scotland needs to start thinking about actually the sort of hard business of governing a bit more rather than feel good sort of social policies that are, of course have a place and are important, um, but can't be the only focus of, of, a, of, a, of a parliament and a government. Right. The new first minister of Scotland comes from my favourite area, Broughty Ferry. And uh, he is Hamza Yusuf. Yeah. And if you want to know something more about uh, Hamza Yusuf, I recommend to watch Indian TV because Hamza Yusuf and Rishi Sunak, that's basically, you know, daily topic because one is coming from the Indian origin, the second one is coming from Pakistani origin, you know. So it's very interesting to, to watch that international discussion, who is who and what is expected uh, from both of them. So. Hamza Yusuf and Scotland, what do you expect from his leadership? And when you said that there is election coming, does it mean that his mandate is only for one year or for how many years? How, how does it work? 
so in terms of Hamza Yusuf's really interesting. When when Nicola Sturgeon resigned, I don't think anyone or a lot many people expected Hamza Yusuf to be the person who would who would take over. Um, he's a long-serving. Um, he was first elected in 2011 and, and has been a long-serving minister. Um, but his reputation um, for competence has not been strong. Um, but nevertheless, he, he has uh, held some very significant um, portfolios like justice, uh, healthcare. Um, so he has he has a lot of experience, um, even if necessarily he hasn't uh, he hasn't managed them uh, so well. Um, and um, he won the the succession to Nicola Sturgeon by promising basically to be the continuity Sturgeon, the successor to Sturgeon's legacy, um, and to pursue more basically more of the same. Um, uh, which is something that he's he's stuck with. I think the the interesting thing about Hamza is, is I don't really know why he wanted to be first minister. I'm not really sure why. I, I mean, I know I think he saw a good opportunity, probably his only opportunity, and took it. Um, but I'm not sure what his vision is for the role and and how he uh, wants to take Scotland forward. And I think you've seen that a little bit in his first few months, his first, I suppose we're coming up to his first hundred days almost now. Um, you know, there's no kind of sense of, okay, Scotland's at point A and I'm going to take it to point B. Um, and I'm not sure that he in his heart and his self quite knows yet what he wants to do with the office. Um, in terms of his uh, kind of his mandate, um, so he was elected leader of the SNP, um, and therefore First Minister. Um, the Scottish Parliament election isn't until 2026. Um, so he's got a few more years, uh, three more years, I guess, for that to, to run. Um, but what we are expecting is a general election uh, for Westminster, so for the UK Parliament as a whole, uh, in uh, sometime next year, it basically has to be, uh, probably autumn, I would think. Um, and uh, the SNP currently hold a significant a uh, number of seats, 44 seats, I think, um, in Scotland, uh, at, in the UK Parliament. The question is, is if the SNP lose a lot of those seats, as seems likely on, on current opinion polls, the Scottish Labour Party is uh, starting to catch up again with, with the SNP. And if the SNP lose a lot of those seats at a general election, can Hamza Youssef survive? Um, he only narrowly won uh, on second preferences with about 52% of the vote on second preferences. He only narrowly won the leadership. Um, he's not that popular. There, there are some people in the parliamentary party who don't like him. Um, his main leadership candidate um, chose to leave the government rather than work with him. Uh, his main leadership rival, sorry, chose, chose to leave the cabinet rather than, rather than work under him. Um, so it could be interesting, I think, if the SNP do badly at a general election, he may be forced out and they may decide to replace him with someone else who could do um, who could do a better job. So it uh, be interesting to see what happens there. And do you have any other political leaders who might aspire for being a first minister or maybe, you know, sort of like new generation coming after Nicola Sturgeon and Hamza Youssef or, or yeah. what sort of stage is the Scottish politics in the leadership? Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think so. The, fir the first person I'd mention actually is in the SNP as well, and is Kate, a woman called Kate Forbes, um, who is uh, early thirties. Um, she's a very impressive, competent woman. She was she was the finance and economy secretary um, until um, last year, or possibly two years ago now, 
uh, when she left to go on maternity leave um, to, to have a baby. She came back from maternity leave to contest the leadership. And as I say, she was narrowly defeated um, by Hamza Youssef. Uh, but I think it would definitely be fair to say that her campaign excited a lot of people. And to go back to what we mentioned earlier when we were talking about um, some of the policy uh, issues that we might have in Scotland. She's someone, I mean, she's a former um, uh, City of London economist. She's someone who's very focused on uh, the economy, on how to grow the economy, how to support business. Um, she was very uh, popular among business leaders when she was in the finance and economy role. And I think there was a sense that she might have provided a bit of a shift in terms of the focus of the Scottish Parliament, which might have been a good, refreshing thing. And I think she really has has her popularity curiously has, has only actually gone up since she was she was defeated so i think if if hamza yusuf were to 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 be ousted or to decide to resign after a difficult election something like that uh that then kate falls would be well positioned to to take over the leadership from him um in terms of the other parties um the scottish labor party has also has a very um uh good kind of up and coming uh leader anas sawa um, interestingly, Anas and uh, Hamza Youssef actually went to the same school. They were classmates in in the same secondary school, which is <laughs> shows you what a small world um, Scotland is. But um, Anas's father um, was a prominent Scottish Labour MP in Glasgow. Um, Anas was a Labour MP until he was defeated in 2015, and is now in the Scottish Parliament um, and is leader. And I think is a very charismatic, um, very articulate. Um, leader who certainly has good popularity ratings among the Scottish public. Um, of course, at this stage, it's quite easy to be popular because, he, you know, there's not much of a policy debate. Uh, he hasn't um, risked irritating anyone yet or anything. Um, but I, th I certainly think he uh, could well be after the next Scottish election, the next First Minister um, is perfectly possible. Um, so those are the two that I'd highlight. Douglas Ross, who's the Conservative Party leader, um, and also sits concurrently as an MP and an MSP, so he's got a busy time. Um, and is 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 a good good in his own way. You know, he 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 um, very much appeals to the conservative faithful. But I would perhaps question how much he could reach out to non-natural conservative voters. Let's jump to speak a little bit about international relations. The first question is energy security and new energy projects in Scotland. Well, I think so. So obviously, we, we mentioned the Green Party earlier, who, who are now in, in a cooperation agreement with the with the SNP. And I think certainly environmentalism, uh, and particularly, you know, responding to the climate crisis has become a really important um, issue in Scottish politics. Obviously, we had COP26 in Glasgow, um, two years ago now, I think. Um, uh, and that really, I think, put the issue on the map in the mind of, 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 of Scottish voters. Um, I'll, I'll take the North Sea first and then think about renewable energy. In terms of the North Sea, there is now a presumption um, against oil and gas, I think it's fair to say. Um, the Scottish National Party were used to be historically very, very in favour of uh, developing the North Sea, developing oil and gas in the North Sea. Um, in the 1970s, they had the slogan, it's Scotland's oil. Um, and certainly when we were looking at 2014 and the independence referendum, the economic pace, case for independence was very much built on uh, tax revenues from oil and gas. Um, so it's quite remarkable that has completely changed and Nicola Sturgeon was instrumental in changing that. Um, so that the Scottish National Party now um, 
it doesn't want to see the North Sea industry completely closed, um, but it, it doesn't want to um, see its life extended uh, beyond what's necessary. It's now much more focused on renewable energy. The same is the case for the Labour Party as well, um, which recently, um, just this week, actually said that it wasn't going to grant any new licences for oil and gas um, exploitation in the, in the North Sea. So I think that there is um, a trend, I suppose, against um, against the North Sea um, that I don't think is likely to change, really. Um, and I think that will probably have consequences for uh, Britain's energy, or may well have consequences for Britain's energy security going forwards, because we're not in a position where we can scale up the renewables uh, necessary uh, in the time that we have, I think, to fill that <clears throat> that gap in domestic supply. Um, but you're absolutely right that Scotland is also a hub um, for renewables, and that's very much the focus, not just of the Scottish government, but also the UK government wants to invest very heavily in, in renewable energy um, in Scotland. Um, and th there's a great deal of appetite for that. I think the issue is, and the concern among um, uh, kind of industry leaders is that there isn't the financial commitment um, to do it at the scale that is and speed that is necessary. Um, I think particularly when you look at countries, you know, like the US with with the IRA or, or, or indeed the EU with their um, their response. Um, I think there is a feeling that Britain and Scotland in particular might be getting left behind in this in this race to support net zero. Um, and so, so that, that does make it a, a, a topic in domestic politics. Um, and I suppose one that would filter through into the international arena a bit as well. Right. And do you see international investment activities in Scotland in terms of energy? I mean, you know, in Edinburgh, do, do you see the meetings, the, the real people coming to Scotland with the real money and real projects? How, how is that? Yeah, I think I think there is I think there is a bit of that, but I think as I said, I think the sense is there could be a lot more. I think that um, the the issue that we've had is um, you know there's been a lack of consistency I think in policy, uh, economic policy generally actually, but 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 in in net zero already, which has made Scotland perhaps a less attractive place for people to invest in some of these technologies and some of these uh, schemes, particularly when you're dealing with. Um, Things like planning and that kind of thing. I mean, the Scottish government is better about uh, those issues, I think, than you would find in England. I mean, so for instance, the Scottish government has control over um, uh, over kind of a big infrastructure planning projects. So uh, it's it can overrule local concerns about the placement of wind farms and, and that kind of thing. And they actually got into a big row in um, 2012 with Donald Trump. I don't know if you followed that at all about. Uh, when they built a wind farm off the off the uh, the coast of his golf course, and he golf course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, so, so I think I think there is um, there is scope. There, I mean, there is definitely investment in in renewables in Scotland for sure. Um, but I think there could be a lot more if there were if there were more consistent. Can you say your opinion on what should be done about it? Like, what do you need to make it better? Well, I think there's a few, I think there's a few things. I think that um, obviously a lot of the technology um, exists, but implementing it is um, costly. And I think so. We need we need government support packages um, for subsidies and uh, incentives uh, to help get some of these technologies up and running, and to help encourage business investment in them. 
give you and and that's a dual responsibility i think between the uk and the scottish government um to give you an example i mean obviously with the north sea there's a huge potential for um carbon capture and uh, storage ccs um uh and and there are a number of sites i think in in the northeast um of scotland particularly peterhead uh where uh, that technology can be implemented, but it hasn't yet um, got off the ground because um, the UK government has delayed um, the uh, necessary investment in it, the necessary funding round for it. Um, so I think I think some changes like that could make quite a big difference without um, too, too much without being too onerous. Um, I do also think there's a skills issue as well, um, particularly in Scotland. Actually, I think. Um, uh, obviously, we have a great expertise in energy in the North Sea, um, but I think there's more that government could do to probably help people transfer those skills and reskill um, in those areas to support um, things like offshore wind um, and, and, and green energy. Um, so those those are two things, I think. Um, I think there's also possibly some financial reforms that could be made. Um, uh, again, probably at a UK level, um, issues like... Uh, Solvency two, the amount that that the insurance companies can invest in in, in infrastructure projects. Um, uh, I think things like that as well could help unlock a lot of money to to support uh, from private investors to, to support green energy. So, how would you assess the Scottish international economic diplomacy? Do you have any special programs, or how does it work? Yeah, so there, there is a. Um, a program called, uh, I think it's called Global Scots or Global Scots, which is a kind of business uh, ambassador program, um, uh, which encourages kind of um, entrepreneurs and business leaders to go out and advocate for Scottish business and Scotland's economy around the world. Um, I think there's a lot of criticism of that scheme, I think, as, as being not very effective um, and uh, and it possibly could do with, with, with being refreshed. I think clearly Scotland... It's a small country, but I think it probably does punch above its weight in terms of the cultural and sort of um, uh, yeah, the sort of cultural recognition it has. I think particularly if you think about trying to attract investment from a country like America, well, there are a lot of people in America who would um, claim sort of Scottish heritage, um, who would have a great interest in in Scotland, and I think that really does help um, in terms of attracting uh, attracting investment. Um, so yeah, I, I I think there is there is there is an effort that goes on to to make inroads um, uh, in the in sort of attracting international uh, economic investment, but but there probably is more that can be done. The next international issue that uh, the world is observing and analyzing in the UK is immigration. Mm. We heard a lot about immigration policies and new laws and new regulations coming from the UK. But what we don't know if this problem or issue is as serious in Scotland as in London, I mean England. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's a really interesting question in terms of Scotland. Um, immigration is obviously, as, as you know, or, and, and your students will know, is, is a very contentious issue in UK politics. But actually, um, in terms of Scotland, it, it, it's quite interesting because the all actually all of the main political parties in Scotland are uh, pro immigration and want more immigration um, uh, to Scotland. Scotland has a serious demographic problem of a declining population in general, um, but it also has uh, a large number of areas that are increasingly depopulated. So I'm thinking of you know the kind of highlands and islands regions of of, 
of Scotland, where it's very, very difficult to get people to move. Um, it's very, very difficult to um, uh, to hire people for jobs. And, you know, this becomes a vicious uh, sort of circle, as, as you'll know, and you see really steep declines um, in, in these places. So there is a political consensus, I think in, it's fair to say, in Scotland, that Scotland needs um, immigration. The issue is, is that uh, immigration policy is reserved to the UK and is treated, um, uh, the UK is treated as a whole. And what you can't have is, is regional immigration. At the moment, what you can't have is regional immigration policies. Now, that may change, I think. I think particularly if a Labour government comes in, there may be scope to um, encourage uh, regional um, immigration, um, particularly around perhaps specific, specific skills, um, but also just in general. Um, and actually, there was a recent uh, study, I can't remember which which think tank it was, but looked at how it might work. And um, you, for instance, you can uh, issue people when they come to the UK with it, you'll be issued with a national insurance number, which is kind of your, uh, you know, the, the number that you need in life to get on with just about anything to get a driving license or uh, rent a house or get a job. Um, and uh, once you've got your national insurance number, but you could, but you can, you can code a national insurance number in a way that would mean that you would only be able to find employment in Scotland. Um, so, for instance, that's an idea of how you could have a, a regional immigration system. You could adjust and offer visas only for Scotland um, uh, and that kind of thing. So, yes, it's a very important issue in Scotland. I think there is a consensus in Scottish politics that um, in favour of immigration, which is unusual. Uh, in terms of UK politics, um, but at the moment, it's unlikely to change just because of the position in the UK as a whole. The last issue I want to speak about in today's interview is uh, a less discussed topic of poverty in Scotland, because not many people know that Scotland is presented as a progressive, modern country with all the high-tech technologies and, and you know, like beautiful landscape and, and everything is all right. But then you go to statistics. And for instance, when I was at the University of St. Andrew, which is located in the region called Fife, you know, almost 65% of people living there, they have a minimum salary. So it's quite poor region in terms of the real income. And when I read about Scotland as a whole, so I discovered that I think around 60 or 58% of people are in the same situation. So the poverty is sort of hidden topic in the Scotland, but as when you speak, especially with the young people who want some sort of future, some sort of employment and income, this is obvious issue. So how can Scotland use international relations, maybe diaspora abroad to tackle the poverty issue in Scotland? I think I think you're absolutely uh, right to, to highlight it, and I think to, to the way you framed the question is very good because there is this perception that that Scotland is this kind of progressive uh, country, and, and I think as a result, among politicians and, and the political establishment, there perhaps is a bit of complacency about some of these issues, and a sense that um, because they say the right things, uh, that that somehow that makes things go away. Um, obviously, that that isn't the case. Um, and I think it's done a lot of some of these things have done real reputational damage to Scotland abroad. Um, the figure that always sticks in my mind is the uh, deaths from drug abuse, um, you know, which are the highest, I think, in the Western world and have really skyrocketed in 
uh, in recent years. Um, I think last year it was about 1,200 people or something died um, as a result of, of, of drug drug deaths. So, um, and, and by sort of proportion of population, that's higher, I think, even than, than the United States or something. Something I, I can't remember, but you know, it's pretty bad. Um, so, um, so these things are are reputationally damaging. Uh, I think in terms of working with the the international community. Um, I certainly think that um, you know attracting investment obviously is is key. Um, I think that also um, we were speaking earlier about um, universities and the loss of Erasmus and that kind of thing. I think trying to make sure that we have um, vibrant research, that we have opportunities for young people, um, that we have that Scotland isn't closed off from the world is is really really important. Um, but I do also think as well, you're right, there's probably a role for the diaspora. I think that um, um, advocating for Scotland abroad is really important. Um, advocating for Scottish industries abroad is really important. Um, and um, encouraging Scottish exports and that kind of thing is, is, is hugely important. But I do think as well you know, that the, the, the domestic politics has a huge, uh, you know, the majority of, of, of the issues that face there. And I think particularly education and healthcare, um, the lowering life expectancy, for instance, that we have in Scotland, that's that's a really shocking uh, uh, thing. And um, that is the Scottish government's responsibility. Um, and uh, whether it's mismanagement or whether it's, um, uh, you know, a failure to, 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 to make the right long-term health decisions, whatever the policy issue might be, um, I, think, I think we really do need to work on that because, as you say, I think it's... Um, it's a scandal, really, actually. Andrew, thank you very much for your insights, your honest opinions about many issues. And this episode was fascinating because we learned so much about Scotland. And as you can see, one of the main characteristics of Scotland is honesty. And this is what I experienced with people, with the Scottish professors, lecturers, you know. People are willing to speak about issues, positive and negatives. And I think Scotland has potential for the bright future, but in some way I hope that you will fix the internal politics, which is a crucial element for the stable, for the progressive international relations. Andrew, thank you very much again for being with us and uh, all the best for your career, for your great books. I hope that you will write the third one and uh, all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Martin. I really appreciate it. It was great to, great to join you. So thank you for having me. See you next time. Thank you.